Well, this morning we are beginning a new series uh, called Build This House, and what I want to do is just kind of give an overview uh, before we launch into the book of Haggai. Um, And I want to do that this morning by starting out talking about cliffhangers. One of the joys of parenting now is that my oldest two boys can read by themselves without talking out loud. I remember when Kasi came to me and he said, hey, I don't have to say the words out loud. And then the second half of my life began. Uh, It was wonderful. You will find them often in their bed or like this on the couch reading, and they're into chapter books now. We've just started reading to them the Chronicles of Narnia, and my boys love cliffhangers. They get so excited when I come to the end of a chapter and I close it, and they go, oh, and they run, and they look at the clock. We still got time. Dad, come on, another chapter, another chapter, please. And the idea of cliffhangers is something that is really, really compelling. And I would say that there are two different kinds of cliffhangers. The first kind is the cliffhanger that that gets you to keep reading, or if you like, it gets you to keep watching. In the age of uh, downloading full seasons and streaming seasons of whatever TV show, sometimes you you just want to go to the next episode, to the next episode. Uh, For a while, there's a very popular television show called 24. I don't know if any of you are familiar with it, where every single episode had to end with some kind of cliffhanger. It was the most absurd contrived scenarios so that at the end of every hour of this man's day, it was in real time, it ended with some dramatic thing that was like, Mr. President, we've heard from our source inside the compound in Sri Lanka. The weapons are active. Do, 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 do. Credits. And it was like, this is ridiculous. We have to watch the next episode. You know, you have to go and see what happens. There's also a second type of cliffhanger that is there to communicate just so you know the story's not over yet. And I would say that this this type of cliffhanger we're very familiar with. If you've seen a Marvel movie, maybe you've stayed well into the credits in the theater going, oh no, I know it's coming. Because there's another scene that lets you know, yep, the story's not over yet. This is going to continue. When I read what I'm about to read uh, here together, um, I thought immediately of the Back to the Future trilogy. I don't know if you guys are familiar with this, uh, but both of the first two movies in this trilogy end with these cliffhangers that then the following film picks right back up on and repeats. And it's there to let you know the story's not over yet. Just so you know, this isn't supposed to be the end of this story. And I would submit to you that it is this kind of cliffhanger that happens all throughout the Bible. And there is one this morning that I want to look at and highlight, and I think it will help us well as we approach the book of Haggai. If you turn with me to 2 Chronicles chapter 36, I'm going to start reading in verse 20. And while you're making your way there to the very end of the book of 2 Chronicles, chapter 36, I just want to kind of put where we are in the Bible history into its full context, okay? When I talk about exile, 
I want you to know what I mean where it lands within biblical histories, okay? So here is a crash course primer in kind of the divisions of the history of the Bible. We have creation and the fall, and that happens in the first chapters of Genesis. And then several hundred years later, we have the flood, okay? And Noah and his sons and the, you know, repopulating the earth. 400 years after that, we get to the family of Abraham. We have Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and Joseph. That spans uh, about 100 years, maybe a little bit more. And with Joseph, the story of Joseph ends with him going off to Egypt and the whole family living there. Fast forward about 400 years, and we have uh, the family has grown to an enormous size, and they are living in Egypt enslaved by the Egyptians. And then we come to what's called the Exodus, where God raises up a deliverer in the form of Moses, and they come out of Egypt, this massive now nation that comes from the family of Abraham, and they wander in the desert for several decades, and then we have what's called conquest, where they are going back into this promised land, this land where uh, Joseph and Isaac and Jacob uh, were first born. And we have, after conquest, which lasts several years, uh, we have a period called the Judges. This period of the Judges is where there is no king in Israel, God is their king, and instead each of the individual tribes has their own territory and their own government of sorts, and at the head of that is what is called a judge. And that lasts for about 400 years. And then we come to a period in their history called the United Kingdom. We have the Kingdom period, and it starts with the United Kingdom, where we, raise, we see three kings raised up, Saul, David, and Solomon. And that United Kingdom period lasts about 120 years before the kingdom is split into North and South. And we have 19 kings in the north and 19 kings and one queen in the south in this divided kingdom period. And that lasts for several hundreds of years before both the north is carried away into exile and then after them, maybe about 100 years, the south is carried off into exile. And that, that is where we land here now in about the year 586 BC when this is going to be read. At the very end of the kingdom period, Babylon, this opposing nation, has come in, they've plundered, they have destroyed the temple that Solomon had built hundreds of years previous, and they've taken away all kinds of gold and silver and precious relics from the temple, and not only that, they've taken away the, king, uh, the kings and ta- imprisoned them in this foreign land and all of their family and all of the ruling class and a good portion of the population they're carrying with them into Babylon. And so Judah, as these people know it, is done, it's over, and we come to the very end of the book of Second Chronicles to read this. And again, this is the very end of 2 Chronicles verse 36, or chapter 36, and I will begin reading in verse 20. He, and he, by the way, is Nebuchadnezzar, 
He took into exile in Babylon those who had escaped from the sword, and they became servants to him and to his sons until the establishment of the kingdom of Persia, to fulfill the word of the Lord by the mouth of Jeremiah until the land had enjoyed its Sabbaths. All the days that it lay desolate, it kept Sabbaths to fulfill 70 years. Now, it could absolutely end there. It could be done. And yet, there's this little addition that's tacked on right at the end of the book of Second Chronicles, and they fast forward 70 years. Verse 22. Now in the first year of Cyrus, king of Persia, that the word of the Lord by the mouth of Jeremiah might be fulfilled, the Lord stirred up the spirit of Cyrus, king of Persia, so that he made a proclamation throughout all his kingdom and also put it in writing. Thus says Cyrus, king of Persia, the Lord, the God of heaven, has given me all the kingdoms of the earth, and he has charged me to build him a house at Jerusalem, which is in Judah." Whoever is among you of all his people, may the Lord his God be with him. Let him go up. Credits. That's the end of the book. But what made me think of Back to the Future in this instance is the very last two verses of this book form the very beginning of the next book of Ezra, even though it happens many years later. In fact, in my Bible, you can see them back to back. Maybe yours is like this as well, where the end of Second Chronicles is verbatim the beginning of the book of Ezra. And that little snippet there is given as this cliffhanger to let you know the story isn't over yet. And this this proclamation, this edict that is given to build this house, that governs the whole of the context of the book of Haggai. That, that command to build the house of the Lord is what the book of Haggai is all about. And so, as we endeavor to dive into this book of Haggai, we're calling this series, Build This House. And it's here, in these little two verses given as this cliffhanger at the end of Second Chronicles, that Scripture is communicating to us where God is letting us know this isn't the end of the story because exile was never meant to be the end of the story. And that is this big idea that I want you to keep in mind, not just today, but all throughout our study of the book of Haggai. All throughout Haggai, we have this command to build this house, as well as this idea that exile was never meant to be the end of the story. Whatever has happened, even as much as it feels like the end, it's not the end yet. There's still more chapters coming. And as we leap ahead in the book of Ezra, there is a really good, succinct couple of verses in chapter 5 that kind of set the stage for the book of Haggai. Turn with me, if you would, to Ezra chapter 5, and we're going to read verses 1 and 2. Ezra chapter 5, verses 1 and 2. Now the prophets Haggai and Zechariah, the son of Iddo, 
prophesied to the Jews who were in Judah and Jerusalem in the name of the God of Israel who was over them. Then Zerubbabel the son of Shealtiel and Jeshua the son of Josadak arose and began to rebuild the house of, the, of God that is in Jerusalem, and the prophets of God were with them, supporting them. So that sets the stage for the book of Haggai. In these two verses, we see several key people and our big mission to build this house. Let's talk about these key people one at a time because they will come up through this study of Haggai. First, we have to look at Zerubbabel. All throughout all four of our pregnancies, I told my wife, this would be such a great name. Can you imagine Zerubbabel? I'm just saying we didn't take it, but now it's yours. For those that are expecting here, I expect next Next year, we're going to have a wave of Zerubbabel's in, in, in the church. I'm just letting you know. Um, Zerubbabel is not a king, but it is important to know that he comes from a family of kings in Judah. He is the grandson of one of the last kings of Judah before they are carried off into exile. And even though he is not a king, he comes from the royal family, and he sort of fulfills that role within the exiles that are returning to Jerusalem. So that begs the question, what is a king? What is the role of a king? A king's job was to care for his people, govern the people, and lead in such a way towards the mission and the will of God that it compelled people to follow. That is a king's job, and that is what Zerubbabel does as he leads this group of exiles, thousands of them, from Babylon into Jerusalem in order to build this house. Second key person mentioned is this guy Joshua, I have up there Joshua slash Jeshua because depending on which version you have, it might say either one. Also, maybe you have the ESV like me, and in Haggai it says one name, and in Ezra it says another name. It's the same guy. Joshua, the son of Josadak, or Jeshua, the son of Jehozadak, it's the same guy. So what, whichever one you're reading, I just don't want you to get confused, it's the same guy. He is the priest with this group in leadership, the high priest, as they go back. And so that, of course, begs the question, what's a priest? What does a priest do? What is his role? A priest, if you like, think of maybe this stage or this screen as God. And what a priest does is he listens to the people and then represents the people before God. So if you can imagine a priest is always listening to the people and then talking to God on behalf of the people, bringing their offerings, their sacrifices, their prayers, etc. A priest's other role is to govern the function of the temple, is to be in charge, to care for it, to oversee the ministries and the functions and the programs of the temple. So that might beg the question, what's the temple? And we will be talking about the temple a lot when we talk about the book of Haggai. 
all throughout the time that the people are wandering before they've entered the promised land and even for hundreds of years after they have entered the promised land, all that they have are these temporary things, tents and, and other things. Maybe they're led by a cloud or a pillar of fire. And what the temple did was it put this place that was a little bit more permanent where they could come and have these um, rituals of their worship. Part of the commands for the children of Israel was to recognize certain times and holidays and festivals and feasts as they came up. And a lot of these, like Passover and Sukkot, the Feast of Booths, part of that was at the end you come together, a convocation, the book of Leviticus says, in order that you can together worship, you can together sing praises, you can together make your offering, you can together confess your sins and make sacrifices and, and be absolved of those sins on, uh, through the priest's work in his behalf, Okay. The temple was just a building that enabled them to come together in order to experience God's glory. It is not unlike what we have now in this church building. I hope every one of us understands and knows the church is not this building. The church is every one of us. We are the church. But often we say, you know what? We need a place to come together and worship. We need a place to come together and confess our sins. We need a place to come together and acknowledge the wonderful things that God has done. We need a place to come together and dedicate children or baptize new believers or take communion. All of those things, and hey, there's a good place to do that. That is what this building functions as. If I said, hey, this weekend we're going to do a prayer walk, meet 10 a.m. at the church, I don't think anyone would be confused. You wouldn't be like, well, technically the church is all of us. You understand what I mean, that this is that gathering place. That is the function of the temple, and when they finally do start recognizing and practicing these feasts and festivals again, it is the temple where they come and together experience God's glory, give him praise, and practice these rituals that had been commanded the people of Israel. So in addition to Zerubbabel and to Joshua, we have these two prophets, Haggai and Zechariah. We are not going to talk that much about Zechariah, but he is there ministering as a prophet at the same time. It is the book of Haggai, and so we'll talk a lot about Haggai and his ministry as a prophet. That, of course, begs the question, what's a prophet? If a priest is someone who faces God, listens to the people, and then represents them to God, a prophet would be kind of the other way around. What a prophet is doing is listening to God and representing him before the people. And when the prophet speaks, it is as if God is talking because he is saying what God has told him to say. And in fact, when we look at prophetic literature in the Bible, it is said with authority. Thus says the Lord. The word of the Lord came to the prophet Jeremiah. The word of the Lord came to Habakkuk, whatever it is. And for that reason, you might be thinking, look, if 2 Chronicles and Ezra are right next to each other, why do I have to flip so far to get to Haggai? Well, it's because all the books of the prophets have been lumped together and they don't necessarily go in chronological order. 
Most of the first part of your Bible is historical narrative. It is telling the story as we go along. And then there is a part where we get to the prophets, beginning with Isaiah, and we go through all the prophets together. So even though Haggai and Zechariah are happening at the same time as what we're reading here in Ezra, they're found elsewhere in the Bible, if that makes sense. You with me? So we got these key people, Zerubbabel, the king, Joshua, the priest, Haggai, the prophet. We've got prophet, priest, and king. And if that order of people rings any bells to you, it should make you think of Jesus. In every story in the Bible, from Genesis to Revelation, I firmly believe all of this book is about Jesus. And it is good, especially when we are studying the Old Testament, to ask ourselves, where is Jesus in this story? How is this preparing us for Jesus? What is this teaching us about Jesus? And there is echoes of that in the way that the people are governed by prophets, priests, and kings. Okay? So what happens is, the Edict of Cyrus comes out in about the year 538 B.C., not quite 70 years after they've been carried off into exile. But this is way before Twitter and Facebook and FaceTime, and an edict takes a while to get copied down and taken to every corner of the province, and it takes a little bit for this proclamation to be read. And the children of Israel are spread all throughout this kingdom of Persia. And in fact, it's a completely different kingdom now. It was Babylon, now the Persians are in charge. And Cyrus issues this edict, this proclamation, to go back and to build this house. And not only does it take a little bit, but also there are some instructions about how to do this. Go to your neighbors, ask them for money. Yes, it says this. Gold, silver, precious things, take those with you. We, the Persians, want to send you on your way as you rebuild this house and reestablish yourselves in Jerusalem. Beyond that, we also want to give you back what we have left of the, the temple stuff that was stolen uh, decades ago, and we're going to give that to you. And it takes Zerubbabel a few years, a few months maybe, to gather up all the people. There are thousands of people that go together. And so by the time they get to Jerusalem, ready to build this house, we have reached the year 536 B.C., and what happens here during this time is they start. They start. They set up an altar. They have a time where they, hey, the calendar, it's, it's almost time for Sukkot, for the Feast of Booths. They celebrate the Feast of Booths for the first time in decades. There's this wonderful service. There are even some people around that remember what it was like before. And it's this really cool time of worship. But then there are some other people still living in the land that don't really care for what's going on. They want to be a part of things. The returning exiles are like, no, this is our thing. There's some tension. We'll talk about that as we dig into Haggai. And what happens is the work stalls out. In fact, let me read here from Ezra chapter 4. We're going to back up just a little bit to Ezra chapter 4, verses 4 and 5. Then the people of the land discouraged 
the people of Judah, and made them afraid to build, and bribed counselors against them to frustrate their purpose all the days of Cyrus, king of Persia, even until the reign of Darius, king of Persia. Even there, there's that little hint at a cliffhanger. All of the days until the reign of Darius, king of Persia. And in fact, you can skip down to the very end of of chapter 4, right before the verses that we read in chapter 5 that set the stage for the ministry of Haggai. And it says this at the very end of chapter 24. Then the work on the house of God that is in Jerusalem stopped and it ceased. But if you've got your Bible in front of you and you've been following along, you know that that's not the end of the verse. Why? Because exile was never meant to be the end of the story. Because God is always redirecting our perspective towards hope, reminding us the story's not done yet, and he includes this little verse. And it ceased until the second year of the reign of Darius, king of Persia. This work that's going on stalls out for 15 years until we come to the year 520 B.C. And the ministry of Haggai and the work that begins in rebuilding the temple all happens in this span of four months in 520 B.C. Haggai has this ministry where he has four separate prophetic visions and he tells them to the people during this work of rebuilding the temple. Haggai is not a very long book. You can see in my Bible, you could read the whole thing right there on two pages. There are four different oracles or visions that he gets, and that's what we will look at at each of the next four weeks as we read the book of Haggai. But remember, even though it is years and years between the edict and when this work gets done, there is always that cliffhanger ending reminding us that exile was never meant to be the end of the story. And I, I really think and believe that this is not just a theme throughout the book of Ezra or the book of Haggai, that this is a theme written throughout all of Scripture. All of Scripture we're peppered with these little cliffhangers where God is letting us know this isn't meant to be the end of the story. It's not the end of the story yet. Hang on to your seats. There's more chapters coming. It's okay. Even when you think of Adam and Eve being banished from the garden, and yet, but I will send someone to crush the serpent's head. There's a flood that wipes out almost all of mankind and much of the living things on the earth, and yet it ends with a rainbow and a promise and a fresh start. God's chosen people are enslaved in Egypt, and yet, he says, I will send a deliverer that will lead you back to the promised land. In between the two testaments, we have these 400 years of silence where there is no prophet, there is no word from God, and yet it ends at the very end in the book of Malachi saying that there will be a prophet that comes heralding, prepare ye the way of the Lord because the Messiah is coming. Jesus 
right before he leaves his disciples for the very last time, says, I'm going to be with my Father, but it's not over yet. I'm going to send my helper to you. When there's a period of intense persecution, when the Roman Empire is really cracking down on this fledgling faith known as Christianity, Paul writes to the church in Rome and he says, that stuff you're going through right now, it's not even worth being compared to what's coming because exile was never meant to be the end of the story. All throughout Revelation, Revelation is a book about what, what do we think of judgment and darkness and suffering and hard things and yet John, the author, is constantly redirecting our focus towards the new heaven and the new earth because that is what we do in the midst of all of this. There is a cliffhanger that says, look towards hope. The end of the Bible itself ends with a cliffhanger. It is Jesus himself saying, be vigilant because I'm coming back. And the gospel itself contains one of these cliffhangers. That God, in order to redeem his people back to himself, becomes a human being in the form of his promised Messiah. And his body is broken for you and for me. And his blood is poured out for the forgiveness of sins. And he dies as a sacrifice for us. But that's not the end of the story. Just like he spent years telling his disciples, after three days, I'm going to rise again. I am going to be resurrected and conquer not just sin and hell, but death itself gets defeated because death was never meant to be the end of the story. And even here, as Haggai ministers to these people and reminding them that exile was never meant to be the end of the story, there is an echo, a beautiful, beautiful echo of the gospel itself where Haggai is presenting to the returning exiles an opportunity to experience the deep joy in preserving the remnant through which that same promised Messiah will one day come because exile was never meant to be the end of the story. So what? Thousands of years ago, 2,500 years, these people go back they speak a different language than us. They're in a different place than us. They have a different command than we do. We live far removed from them. What does this mean for us here now today? Well, I would say this. God is still reminding us that exile was never meant to be the end of the story. God is still reminding us he is still writing chapters and the story isn't done yet. And he is still redirecting our focus towards hope, towards the resolution he has yet to bring in our lives, but it's coming because it was never meant to be the end of the story. Maybe this morning you find yourself going through a really hard season. You don't know what's going on. You've had setback after setback. You had a plan, and you ripped it up and got a new plan, and you ripped it up, and you've stopped making plans because what on earth does that do? And you don't know what's coming next. You have no idea what God is going to be doing next year, let alone next month in your life. 
That was never meant to be the end of their story. Maybe you're grieving. Maybe you've experienced deep loss or had to say goodbye, maybe even death. Here this morning, God reminding you that was never meant to be the end of the story. Maybe you're in a period where you're questioning your faith, where you aren't even really sure what you believe or if you believe that thing anymore. You aren't sure what to do next. You're not sure what to call yourself or what you believe. Hear and feel the promise of God as he redirects you towards hope and know that was never meant to be the end of your story. There is more coming. And I have just two pieces of advice for those that find themselves in this place where you don't know what the next chapter is, but you know it's not meant to be the end of your story. First, take heart. Just as in Scripture we are constantly redirected and our, per- our perspective is, re- is shifted to look at hope, take heart. Be filled with the hope that only God's Spirit can bring as he tells you this isn't the end. There are more chapters that I'm writing. It's okay. Take heart, but also take heed. In the midst of these Israelites returning to Judah for the first time in decades, not really knowing what to expect, even when they thought we were going to be starting a project and it stalls out and there's opposition and there's speed bumps and there's delays and everything that goes on, the refrain is repeated over and over again to build this house. And when you're in a time where you don't know what's next, God is still writing your story even though you know it's not the end but you don't know what comes next, it's good to just fall back on basic principles. It's good to fall back on what is it that God has called me to do, what is it that God is commanding me to do right now in this season. And for the exiles, that was a repetition, build this house. Everything else is gonna fall into place, I'll take care of that right now, your job is to build this house. And maybe for you, you're in a time where God just wants you to be matured. He wants you to submit to a discipleship relationship. He wants you to experience a time of Sabbath, of rest. He wants to teach you something that in this season you wouldn't get any other time in your life. Maybe he is just calling you to come back to basic principles. Studying God's word, praying, Submitting yourself to a community that wants to disciple you and raise you up and make you more like Christ. And in the same way, maybe during this season, all that God is telling you to do is to say, would you come and contribute to this community here? This building is not the end-all be-all, and this building is not the church. We are the church. But would you joyfully commit to coming, being part of this community, contributing to this community and building his kingdom in what we can here do together during this season in the same way that he calls the people of Judah, build this house. I am really excited over the next few weeks to dive into the book of Haggai. We're going to look at all of chapter one next week 
And I pray that you would uh, do that with me, and I'm, uh, I'm looking forward to it. Let's pray. God, we thank you so much that you are still writing our story, that there is always a bent towards hope, that you are constantly reminding us it's not over yet. There is still more that I am doing. I pray that we would take heart and take heed, that we would be filled with hope, that even if we don't know what the next steps are, we know that you have ordered them. And I pray that we would be faithful in obeying you, in engaging well within our community, that we together might build your kingdom in the same way that the people of Judah came and built your house. We pray all of this in the mighty name of Christ. Amen.